Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. AgriPod is brought to you by Smart Nutrition Map Plus MST. Soil is your most powerful machine. On this episode, Farm Management Canada has released a research report investigating the business management needs of Indigenous agricultural producers. The Path Forward, as it's called, was made possible through the participation of Indigenous agricultural business owners from across the country who participated in surveys, focus groups and interviews. FMC Executive Director Heather Watson said they were able to create a picture of the current state of their farm businesses and determine what they need. Heather will share what they've learned and how the information will be used to benefit Indigenous agriculture. Architectural planning has started on a new insect research facility at the University of Saskatchewan. Just over $1 million is being spent on the project located on the sixth floor of the agriculture building on campus. The facility will see work in both plant pest and beneficial insects, some of which are not native to Western Canada. USASC first entomologist Sean Prager will talk about the work involved in getting this new facility operational. After the break, Heather Watson. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Heather Watson is the executive director of Farm Management Canada. Heather, uh, we're going to be talking about the release of the report, The Path Forward. First of all, um, what do Indigenous farmers need to be successful? Let's jump right in. Yeah, yeah, you, you really are jumping right in with that question. So I think, I mean, we need programs that fit their unique needs. So, I mean, our mandate is to support producers across Canada, but, you know, looking at some of the latest research from groups like the BC Ministry of Agriculture, etc., we started to understand that, you know, there are very unique needs of the Indigenous population. And so, you know, even though I would say, you know, what do Indigenous producers need to succeed? Of course, it's investing in business management, you know, skills development and training, just like any other uh, producer across Canada. But when you look at, you know, how the needs fit the, um, you know, the way we go about skills development and, and delivery training in Indigenous populations, that's where it starts to tell a different story. So our research looked at you know, what are the unique needs and our findings are around, you know, the the delivery of the of the programs, but also, you know, the way in which we go about working with Indigenous communities. So things like involving, you know, Indigenous um, peoples in the development and the delivery, as well as including, you know, cultural and traditional information um, and, you know, being sensitive to to the way in which culture and tradition impacts um, the Indigenous community and the, you know, the skills development needs as well. So things like involving elders in not only development, but also delivery and um, also involving youth. So kind of bridging that gap between, you know, those that are interested in those that that could be interested in kind of, um, you know, increase the you know, the involvement of Indigenous populations in agriculture, but also, you know, creating that that legacy within agriculture as well. 
Lots of great information in the report, but um, I guess you've uh, managed to condense it down into five recommendations, very specific recommendations. So maybe let's talk about those. What are some of the uh, challenges in making that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, of course, you know, we endeavored with this research. We wanted to, you know, at the end of the day, meeting our mandate, look at what are the opportunities for, you know, business management training in, in Indigenous communities. But, you know, along the way, we discovered a lot of interesting information that, of course, you know, influences how we go about that, but also gives other stakeholders in the industry and, and you know, support providers opportunities to, um, you know, to impact the, the community in a very positive way. So, um, you know, a few of the recommendations hit exactly what we were looking for in terms of, you know, how do we go about doing this? But, you know, with 15 recommendations coming out of the report, um, you know, we're really hoping that it's something that, you know, um, a large number of stakeholders can can pick up on and then run with. So getting into the recommendations, our first recommendation is around building lasting relationships with Indigenous communities. So, you know, oftentimes it might be easy to think, oh, well, we've got this great program. Why don't we just, you know, bring it into the Indigenous community? And, you know, if we build it, they will come kind of mentality. But really, you know, through this research, looking at the importance of establishing um, relationships within Indigenous communities before we kind of just parachute in and say, you know, have we got the solution for you? Um, But really appreciating that, you know, that tradition and that culture and building, you know, a foundation for a lasting relationship. So kind of seeking first to understand before we, you know, start trying to say that we have all the solutions to, you know, to challenges and we have the pathways towards opportunity is really, you know, establishing and growing those industry connections. So that's kind of, I guess, the first step, and and that's why it's our first recommendation. Um, Moving on to recommendation number two, so that's uh, increasing awareness of and access to Indigenous agricultural opportunities and support programs. So first off, increasing, you know, agricultural awareness and promotion within the Indigenous community. So, you know, it's really positive looking at over the last 10 years, there's been, um, I think, about a 20% increase in um, Indigenous populations involved in agriculture. So that's wonderful news. But of course, um, you know, like like other populations as well, we're looking at how can we increase that even more? How can we, um, you know, bring agriculture into these communities in an, in, um, in an impactful way? Um, so increasing, you know, awareness of opportunities in agriculture. And then as well, you know, tying back again to the previous recommendation is is really looking at how can we connect to Indigenous leadership and using that influence to make sure that there's, you know, kind of a, you know, a soft landing within these communities. So, you know, we're not kind of just barging in and saying this is how we've got to do things, but really working through those those structures and those networks to, to make sure that we are appreciating what's already there um, and and working together to, to find, you know, solutions and opportunities. And I think this includes as well increasing awareness of, 
you know, indigenous agriculture support programs, uh, for sure. There's lots of programs available out there, and not necessarily everyone knows what exists, but also there's a lot of, you know, agricultural or business development programs out there, too. So I think there's an opportunity to increase awareness of those as well. I'm speaking with the Executive Director of Farm Management Canada, Heather Watson. Heather, the third recommendation deals with enhancing Indigenous education opportunities. So are you talking about education at uh, a variety of different levels? We're looking at opportunities in post-secondary education systems, so working with colleges and universities to, you know, ensure that Post-secondary education takes into account the unique, you know, needs and wants of Indigenous populations. Um, And then, you know, looking at kind of more towards our mandate would be on the business management side of things. So, of course, looking at post-secondary, you know, curriculum, but also what other programs and training opportunities can we create. So for us, you know, it was kind of very clear that there was a desire for you know, kind of a farm business management 101 course developed um, in close uh, partnership with Indigenous stakeholders, um, you know, representatives, and of course, elders as well. So being involved in both the development and the delivery of the program. Um, And then also, you know, even looking at, you know, not necessarily just, you know, how can we help Indigenous producers in their skills development and training, but how can we you know, introduce um, Indigenous concepts into, um, you know, agricultural curriculum or agricultural training so that the learning kind of goes both ways. Um, And looking at different mediums to use for that training, you know, not everyone is keen on, you know, an in-person course or a webinar or, you know, a long drawn out course. You know, there's opportunities around mentorship. um, There's opportunities around you know, micro-credentials and other types of accreditation and things like that. So really like looking at, you know, blowing up that space and and figuring out, you know, who needs what and, and when and how. And then recommendation number four is about expanding Indigenous support services. So looking at, you know, greater access to agricultural support programs, so increasing access for um, Indigenous populations in those programs. We know that the provinces, for example, offer, you know, cost share funding for training and sometimes for advisory services and other supports. And just making sure that, you know, um, Indigenous populations have equal opportunity to those programs out there. Um, But then also there might be a need to look at expanding the opportunities um, for, you know, the unique um, situations that Indigenous populations find themselves in. Um, For example, you know, when it's on reserve versus off reserve, there's, um, you know, certain um, limitations that can present themselves in traditional support opportunities. Um, for example, you know, access to capital and things like that. So looking at how can we address some of these um, systemic barriers um, and really expand on Indigenous support services and then back again to, you know, in a meaningful way, in a way that's going to um, provide for, you know, long-standing support um, and not just, you know, kind of a, a flash-in-the-pan approach, but really looking at these foundational pieces for for longevity within the agricultural sector. And then that brings us to recommendation number five, so looking at enhancing Indigenous research and analysis. And so although we found, you know, a pretty 
a pretty substantial list of programs available to um, Indigenous populations, whether in, you know, Indigenous agriculture or business management or um, other types of, you know, support programs for for agriculture in and of itself. Um, There was a lack of information on, you know, how these programs are working. So it would be really interesting, um, you know, to, to kind of partner with a group to take on, you know, are the are the support programs that are currently out there working, or can they be improved? Um, and then also, you know, looking at how can we identify further barriers. Of course, our mandate is around farm business management skills development, and so um, you know, our research found that there are you know other barriers beyond you know access to training or access to subject matter experts. And so, you know, digging into those a little bit more, I think we've kind of through this research provided a bit of a foundation for um, you know here's some other areas that we could look into a little bit more. Um, you know, deeply when it comes to things like access to capital or infrastructure, things like access to high-speed internet, etc., that presents barriers to Indigenous producers. On the next episode of AgriPod, Heather will be back to talk about how Farm Management Canada's information can help a variety of Indigenous agriculture ventures across the country. After the break, a new insect research facility will be built at the University of Saskatchewan. USASC entomologist Sean Prager will tell us about the new building and the important work that could impact a number of different crops from canola to potatoes. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarland. Sean Prager is the first entomologist at the University of Saskatchewan's College of Agriculture and Bioresources. He's been in Saskatoon for five years now and certainly is looking forward to the completion of the new insect research facility. Sean, not only will you be able to study insects native to Saskatchewan, but I understand from other parts of the world. It will give us the infrastructure that currently doesn't exist on campus. So it'll allow us to keep insects in general, and then it'll allow us to keep insects that we otherwise would not be allowed to keep um, in Saskatchewan, in Saskatoon, even in Canada in some cases. And this includes both beneficial insects that we could eventually use to control pests, and maybe even more importantly, pest species that have yet to arrive in Canada, but that are known to be threats to agriculture in other places. We would like to work on insects from other parts of the world that are potentially threats to Saskatchewan. So things that might be in the States but haven't arrived here yet, or things that we know threaten a particular crop in Australia or in Asia, that could be a problem for us if they were to get here. Particularly interested in astroleaf hoppers, in aphids. We do a lot of work on pollinators as well. And we just finished a fairly big project on lesser cloverleaf weevil. So lesser cloverleaf weevil are a big problem for uh, forage seed production, particularly red clover in sort of more northern areas of the province. We work on potato psyllids, but in fact, that's something we can't do very much with because we're not allowed to work on them in Saskatchewan. Um, But they're a major potato pest in sort of bordering areas, so in Idaho and Washington. And then we've been starting to work more on some other things that are newer pests of either horticulture or field crops. So how big is your research team right now, and uh, how do you expect it might change once this facility is fully operational? 
it's about 10 people right now. That's the most we can probably accommodate. So we are incapable of doing any more work that requires laboratory space at this point because we do not have the ability to keep and grow the plants and insects that we need. So this space will allow us to take on multiple new projects and potentially multiple new students and postdocs. Sean Prager is an entomologist with the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, Sean, can you describe what this facility is going to look like so we can get a sense of its structure? And I'm sure there's probably areas the public will be able to see, but much of it the public won't be able to, uh, to enter? It is the insect version of the thing you see in Outbreak, or if you were to go to Vito Intervac. So what it really is, is a series of walk-in and reach-in chambers, much like you might have seen if you went to the Saskatchewan or if you're sort of accustomed to other controlled growth facilities. So what you would see are rooms mostly, a few rooms and then lots of chambers that you grow plants in. But the rooms and chambers are housed within a specially designed space. And that space has a bunch of features that um, keep things that are potentially harmful from leaving. So much of the important part is actually behind the scenes that you don't see. So it has special drains and special screening. It has red light because insects can't see red light. So it prevents them from being attracted to the light. Um, it has ante rooms. So you can go in and you can change your clothes into a like a Tyvek suit so that you can blow off any insects that might be on you before you leave. A whole series of safeguards to make sure that whatever you're working on doesn't leave with you. The architectural stage of the new facility is underway. Uh, Being that it's complex, I'm assuming that it's likely a little more complicated uh, getting it designed than the actual construction itself. Yeah, because in many ways, it's a machine as much as it is a room or a series of rooms. And so it had, because of all of these requirements to make sure that the insects don't escape, you have lots of things about airflow and temperature and space considerations that need to be done. And that all has a lot of engineering um, that wouldn't otherwise be something you would have to do in like a regular space. We're hoping that the construction will be done by the spring, but there's an approval process that has to be done by the food inspection agency. And so that could take a little longer. And then if they have any changes, they ask, we would have to go back and make those final changes. But hopefully by this time next year, we will be sort of like the Death Star will be fully operational. The preliminary work on the University of Saskatchewan's new insect research facility has begun, and I've been speaking with entomologist Sean Prager, and we're looking forward to how that facility comes to be, and hopefully we'll know more in the next year or so. This is the Agriculture News Roundup for the week of October 11th, 2021. Two organizations have put financial support behind the Hay West project led by the Canadian Federation of Agriculture. Farm Credit Canada and the Ontario Federation of Agriculture have both made substantial contributions to help cover the shipping cost to send hay to drought-stricken farmers in the prairies. All proceeds from the donations go directly to paying shipping costs for moving hay. CFA currently has tens of thousands of bales of hay to be sent to the prairie provinces, but said the demand for hay is still extremely high and more is needed.
Well, it has been a hard year for crop producers, ranchers, and grain buyers. But the drought left some farmers without enough grain to fulfill their contracts with buyers. Keystone Agricultural Producers President Bill Campbell said there has been a financial impact throughout the entire value chain. And he encouraged producers to talk directly to their buyers and producers. And buyers need to honour the contracts they've signed as well. While producers have voiced concerns, the fees are a significant challenge to their financial viability. Campbell said it is a situation where buyers can help lessen the financial burden on producers as they manage the impact of an unprecedented drought. CAP is planning a crop marketing seminar to help producers understand their options and obligations as they make business decisions going forward. Keeping club root low and local is the best way to prevent the spread of the soil-borne disease. The Canola Council of Canada has developed an easy-to-read fact sheet and infographic. It was prepared by Autumn Barnes, an agronomy specialist. The new fact sheet is available at clubroot.ca and covers the key practices to mitigate club root and maintain profitability. Well, it certainly was a tough week for some farm equipment manufacturers. Deer and company workers went on strike at 14 facilities across the United States. The 10,000 members of the United Workers Union rejected a six-year labor contract. Deer said its operations in Canada and the United States would continue as normal. And CNH Industrial temporarily shut down some of its European factories due to supply disruptions. Several agricultural, commercial, vehicle and powertrain manufacturing facilities would be closed for no longer than eight working days. National Farmers Day and Climate Corporation released an Angus Reid report that said there is a high level of trust in Canadian farmers, with three in four Canadians confident in a farmer's ability to meet Canada's food demand. Confidence was strongest in Saskatchewan and Manitoba at 93 percent, followed by Alberta at 84 percent. Climate Corporation spokesperson Marvin Talsman said confidence in farming is generally high, but public knowledge of the agriculture industry remains low, and he wants to change that. More Canadians gained respect for agriculture during the pandemic than lost it, with nearly two-thirds saying they now have more appreciation for the industry. Another option is going to be available for those interested in a career in agriculture. Sask Polytechnic will be offering a three-year agriculture and food production diploma program at its Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan campus. Dean Jamie Hilt said the program is a cross-discipline design that includes farm management, agricultural machinery, new technology and livestock production. There will be three paid work terms at agricultural businesses, or on medium to large size farms. A Saskatoon-based company said that they are looking for farmers that might be interested in growing quinoa. All of the cleaning and processing is done in Saskatchewan. Lane Christensen is a farm services representative with Northern Quinoa. He said new growers usually start with 80 acres or less, and it can provide a break from canola and pulse diseases in the rotation, but quinoa should not be grown after canola. That's because it's hard to get canola out of quinoa in the cleaning process. Christensen said 2022 contract prices have not been set, but added they will be higher than last year as there will be plenty of competition for acres.
Wild boars have been found for the first time in a Canadian national park. Parks Canada confirmed that wild pigs are now regularly present at Elk Island National Park east of Edmonton. Parks Canada spokesperson said the agency is hoping to work with the Alberta government pig removal program to get the animals out of Elk Island Park. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarland for more weekly episodes. AgriPod was brought to you by Smart Nutrition Map plus MST. Soil is your most powerful machine. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Patterson Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.